What does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. In the days of Lent leading up to Easter, the church is invited to reconnect to the word. In the next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer, And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. We decided to do this podcast because there are times when the Bible makes a lot of sense and there are other times when it's confusing and we don't know exactly what to make of the stories. So we want you to know that the pastors of the church actually struggle with the same questions. And so we hope the conversations that we have around these lessons will help to unlock our readings and maybe uh, help us take something from them. We are now in the last week of Lent. Uh, this coming Sunday is Passion Sunday. Uh, when I was growing up, we always called it Palm Sunday, and actually that was the only thing we read. We read the Palm Sunday story, and it was brass and triumph the whole service long. Um, that was also in the days when pretty much most people came to church on Good Friday when we read the rest of the story, the story of the crucifixion and the burial. Uh, since then, times have changed a lot, and not so many people come to church on Good Friday anymore. So now if we didn't read the Passion story on Sunday, a lot of people would only get part of the story. You'd get the triumph on Palm Sunday, the triumph on Easter without any journey to the cross. So now we read that Passion story on Sunday morning. So actually at Gloria Day this Sunday, what we'll do is we'll start outside the sanctuary by reading the Palm Sunday story, and actually we'll be discussing that here in a few minutes today. And then we'll process into the church. Waving our palm branches. Waving our palm branches and singing all glory, laud, and honor. And then we will hear the full Passion story, which is about two chapters from the Gospel of Luke, which we will not be reading or discussing today. You'll have to come to church on Sunday uh, we'll also be discussing today in this podcast two Bible lessons assigned for Passion Sunday that we actually won't hear on Sunday morning because, again, we're reading two chapters from the Gospel of Luke. I love the phrase passion uh, text or uh, passion narrative. We read the story of Jesus' death, and we call it passion um, Graham Parker, one of my favorite singers, has a song called Passion is No Ordinary Word, the sense that we— we think of Jesus' death as his incredible love, passionate love, and God's passionate love for the earth, and it's called Passion Sunday. Um, maybe we should have passion fruit. Maybe our wine mm. could be passion fruit wine. Maybe you can shop for that this I'll weekend. I'll work on that. <laughs> okay. I think we should look at the lessons now. <laughs> We're, we'll, we'll do this in three parts. We'll talk about a lesson, and then we'll take a little break with music so that if you need to go – 
do your chores or take a break. We'll be here when you get back or, or you can feel free to listen to uh, the whole podcast. Pastor Lois, why don't you give us a little background on the first reading? Thanks. This is from Second Isaiah again. It's Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 9. We've been talking about this part of Isaiah because we read Isaiah a lot during Lent. We read Isaiah a lot in the church. In fact, is it Martin Luther? Somebody calls Isaiah the fifth gospel. Hmm. Um, but it's there's so much beauty in Isaiah that we get to hear. You've probably heard a lot of it in Messiah or various times that you'll hear these readings. Again, as Pastor Bradley described last week, this is the time that the people of Israel had been moved into exile far away from Jerusalem. They were grieving their home, and they longed to be returned to home. They had this hope and this vision that maybe they would be going back, um, that God had not abandoned them, that God would lead them home again. And this is one of um, four poems in this section of Isaiah about the suffering servant, uh, a description of some either individual, maybe the prophet himself, or maybe all of Israel suffering in pain as they long to be returned to home. Javen, can you read it for us today? Sure. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near." Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Thank you. This uh, begins with this phrase of God's word coming to the suffering servant. The, the God, God has given me the tongue of a teacher so I can proclaim God's word. The suffering servant hears the word of God waking him up, and it almost feels as if the Word of God is striking him in the face. This uh, The the Word um, wakens me, and it feels as if someone's plucking out my beard. So to some degree, the, the teacher is hearing, oh, this Word is so hard, so important, it feels painful that I have to bring it. We hear in these readings that God is with those who suffer. God does not abandon us. Um, at the end there, uh, Pastor Javen was reading those sentences, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It's that same uh, tone that Paul writes about in, in Romans in a verse that we are very familiar with where it says, hey, what are you arguing with me about? Who, what have you got to stand up with? If God is for me, Who's going to be against me? You can you can throw anything else at me, and I think that's the tone of this too. Is saying, so the someone's hitting my face or plucking my beard out or making life miserable for me. You've got nothing. I've got God on my side. That that song will sustain me 
no matter what. In some ways, the church has often said, oh, Jesus is the suffering servant because Jesus understands all these kinds of things. And we certainly use this text on Passion Sunday because we realize what Jesus is going to go through. But if you read Isaiah just on its own, you remember it it could be for anyone who has suffered, either on account of their faith or just recognizing in their abandonment a longing for God's presence. I hear in this the voice of injustice. It's like that the suffering that this person or this community has experienced is profoundly unjust and comes because they have stood on some principle or they have lived with integrity and therefore suffer for it. Because I hear this kind of courageous part of it that says, you know what, I'm I'm not going to hide my face. I'm going to look straight at my accuser. I'm going to look directly at the, the, my enemy. I'm not going to back down because I know that I'm in this with God and that there's a kind of righteousness in in where I am. So a kind of courage that comes from whoever this is, this servant or or the community. And how often does this happen to any of us in our daily lives that we're confronted with an opportunity to confront injustice and call it out, knowing that we're going to face consequences of some sort, whether it's some social consequences, like what we're doing is unpopular, or professional consequences, or – and – how often do we need that encouragement to know? Um, I love that line, uh, let us stand up together. I was just thinking about like the Me Too movement or mm-hmm. something where it's like, I'm going to call this out and it's going to be terrible for my career and it's going to be hard and awful, but let us stand up together um, knowing that we are doing the right thing here. Yeah, I hear the community that works for civil rights and you mm-hmm. think of the stories from the 50s and the 60s that the suffering that people went through in the end was redemptive because it changed something and it was their willingness to experience that suffering take it in so that they showed up they showed a mirror to the whole society of that this is what racism looks like they confronted the entire nation to say this is who you are and you have to see it and i think that's the power of those who suffer for the sake of righteousness or for love and for justice there's so much to say about that reading but let's take a break here and then we'll move on to our next reading Welcome back. 
Our next reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the second week we've had a reading from Philippians. Uh, This is Paul writing to a church that he founded in Philippi, which is in Greece. This is actually the first European Christian uh, church that is formed. And uh, scholars think that he's probably writing about 10 years after he first went to Philippi and established the church. He's in prison in Rome, probably, and he clearly has affection for the church in Philippi. He Paul is cheerful when he is writing this uh, letter, which is not true in some of the other letters that he writes. Paul can be kind of grumpy uh, to people. But here he really has deep affection for people, and you have a sense that he knows he may not see them again. He expresses his desire to visit them, but he also says, you know, I I may never get there. And so right before the reading that we're going to read today, he says things, if I don't get there, what I want for you is just just live a life worthy of the gospel. Be of the same mind, don't be selfish or coercive. Don't just focus on your own interests, but take in the interests of others. And so the the verses right before kind of leave with the question is, all right, that's what you want us to do. Why do we do that? And then we come to this section, um, which some people believe was actually the words of a hymn that the early church sang. Pastor Lois, would you read this if you don't want to sing it? Yeah, I could try and make up a music, but let's let's spare ourselves that. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. This text connects so well to the one that we just talked about in Isaiah. It's like this is a further example of what the suffering servant looks like, that this is someone who knows so clearly where they've come from, who they are, who they're meant to be, that they can just give themselves all away. And of course, this is the one of the primary driving uh, images for how we understand who Jesus Christ is, who uh, could have just reigned with God in power and might and glory, but instead gives it all away, gives himself away for the sake of 
others. And this whole passage leads to what was probably one of the earliest confessions in the church, which is Jesus Christ is Lord. And this was a countercultural confession because people expressed their patriotism by saying Caesar is Lord. So here Christians are turning that all over. This goes back to the purple that we were talking about at one point. This is the reversal of what royalty actually looks like. And instead of ascending to the heights, it's like we're being proposed a model that is like downward mobility, um, giving away, giving up, service, humility. I was trying to think what the equivalent in 21st century America might be, and it could be something like uh, Jesus is our president. Um, but ultimately, that didn't quite work because I don't think we ascribe divine status to our president. Um, but what I thought of is, is what if we said Jesus is our currency? Mm. Um, I think we ascribe a lot more sacredness to money and patterns of wealth um, that American spirituality has to do with money. Consumption. Um, consumption. Um, but in a sense, in the church, we trade in service. We trade in humility. Our currency, our way of living is the way of Jesus. You know, we talk a lot about how, and we've been talking a lot about how Jesus is showing us a different way of kingship that and that's kind of what you know the last episode we talked about purple and how we're we're saying Jesus is a king and that's a very different kind of kingship and it looks more like what we've heard in this reading and i was thinking about that is all true and i think it is true that in our culture we ascribe great status to people who have wealth and power and all of that and at the same time i think it's also true that we at least some of us elevate those in our midst who have humbled themselves and sacrificed something great to for the sake of others. I was thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. or just we could name any number of people that we ascribe some sort of almost like hero status to because of the sacrifices that they made for the sake of others. And it's not always true that in American culture, we only identify greatness with these kind of worldly um, worldly things. I think there is part of us that knows that there's something noble and holy about sacrificing and humbling ourselves for the sake of another. Well, I think humility is an interesting topic to talk about here too because I do think we talk about that as a value and we are kind of turned off by people who aren't appropriately humble or who speak grandiosely, if that's a word, about mm -hmm. them themselves. So there is a kind of cultural resonance with humility. But I think often it gets turned around a little bit too because – um, certain groups are, uh, are supposed to be humble um, and it's, it's ascribed to them or we want, 
we want girls mm-hmm. to express more humility than boys. It's not as much of a value for boys as, as it might be for mm-hmm. girls. And in the end, you can't ask somebody to be humble. You can't require humility of somebody else. It's always got to start with you, you know, right. with yourself. Right. It's not a demand that, you know, how do, how do you ask someone to be humble? Uh you know, by saying that, you're you're giving them the sense that you have more power than they do. And that's, you know, okay, then you've already put me in my place. I think humility is amazing when someone who could have great power chooses humility instead. It's not cool when we say the poor should uh, so appreciate the humility that we've bestowed upon them. <laughs> Let's take a little break and then we'll come back to the Palm Sunday reading. Welcome back. We are now going to read the Palm Sunday gospel reading, which is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. So in the gospel of Luke, Jesus had begun his ministry in Galilee, which is the northern part of the territory where Jews lived in that time. And Galilee was sort of like this backwater part of the country and other Jews in that time, looked down on the Galileans. Um, They were maybe sort of like the hicks or the rednecks of their day. And Jesus and his earliest followers were Galileans. And so that's important to remember, I think. Um, About midway through Luke's gospel, Jesus, it, it tells us in the gospel, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And he decides he needs to make his way to Jerusalem to confront the political and religious establishment there, the the powers that keep his people oppressed. And so now, in the passage we're about to read, Jesus is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, um, and it's the beginning of the week of Passover. So Passover is a Jewish celebration of the Exodus story, which is the story where God liberated God's people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And so just think about this, that This story takes place in Jerusalem where the Roman government exerts control over the Jewish people. And it takes place – the story takes place at a time when the Jewish people are about to celebrate that old story about how God liberated the people from oppression. Um, So there must have been just a lot of tension in the air, um, like a spark could set off a huge explosion. So I think that's a little bit about the context for this passage. Pastor Bradley, would you read it for us? Sure. This is Luke 19, 28 through 40. After he had said this, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. 
As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Thank you, Pastor Bradley. So, I was thinking about this story and thinking about a protest I took part in a few years ago at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, hundreds of people marched around the streets of St. Paul. um, And we marched past the police headquarters, um, which is actually very near my house. And we were marching on the street. And when we got to the police station, we we staged a die-in, which is where everyone just laid down in the street as though we were dead. And it was to protest police brutality. And it was just like really shocking symbol. And the reason I've thought of that story is that um, that was a direct action. And a, a direct, so in the community organizing world, a direct action is when like you do something that sort of pulls back the curtain and reveals an injustice, or or it can be a way of like embodying an alternative vision for the world um, that sort of confronts reality in a really visceral kind of way. And I was thinking about that because I think what Jesus is doing here is actually a direct action where he's trying to embody an alternative reality. And a lot of what I'm saying here is influenced by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, who wrote this great book, which all of you should read, called The Last Week. And it focuses on a, it's sort of a day by day, play by play of Holy Week. Um, but they say that there were actually two processions happening on Palm Sunday. Um, and what was going on was that on one side of town, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, is coming into town because Passover is about to happen. Remember the celebration where people are celebrating their liberation from oppression. And Pilate comes to sort of keep the peace, to quell any sort of rebellion that might be in the air. So he comes with this huge procession of cavalry and soldiers, and it's like this big display of imperial power. And then on the other side of town, you have Jesus, remember this hick from Galilee, and all his like redneck followers who are following him. And Jesus gets on a donkey and his followers are waving palms and throwing down their their coats on the path in front of him, like rolling out the red carpet in really kind of a low class kind of way, right? And all of this is sort of, it's a pretty clear allusion to this passage in Zechariah where it says, the king will come riding a donkey and he will bring peace. Um, he will uh, sort of shatter the violence of the empire and he will bring peace. And so Jesus is like embodying this alternative reality 
like a direct action. And so I feel like this story has some pretty strong political overtones to it that we dismiss or overlook. Like we don't want to think of Jesus as like a political organizer who like led direct actions. (laughs) But I think that's actually what he's doing here. Well, you know, in the last few years, we've invited children to make posters that proclaim the world they yearn for or they think we should live in. And then we have carried those posters in the Palm Sunday procession down the street. And it's really profound what the kids think about to write on their signs. And it's things like peace for everybody, love is for all, no guns, no bombs. Uh, Everybody gets to eat. Yeah, right. So the children are inscribing their alternative vision for what the world can – not just what the world can be, but the world that's coming into being as we are church together, that the Palm Sunday procession isn't just a liturgical event. It's a symbol for what we're called to be in the world. Mm -hmm. The disciples, it says, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen. And we can think of that as they were remembering everything Jesus has done. But I also think there's a way for us to say, all the things that we have seen that remind us that God's love has not been snuffed out, that there's still this promise of newness and change and life and a world which children can envision in which people are fed and uh, and safe and given a sense of a future. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing all that and imagining that even while on the other side of town, they're getting a totally different picture of things. I I think that's just amazing. Well, on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we need to wind up for today. We're really interested in hearing what you have to say about these Bible lessons, so drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. If you want to know more about Gloria Day, you can find us on the web at gloriadaystpaul.org. We want to offer a special thank you to Paul Friesen Carper for the music that comes between the readings. And we invite you to join us for worship on Passion Sunday or any Sunday at 8.15 and 10.45. And also this week, note that we'll be, as we enter into Holy Week, we'll gather in worship on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thanks so much for being with us. Know that God is alongside you, God loves you, and God will provide you what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.